before we even get into that. You need to have a cut intro that says, Bible Classroom Podcast was recorded in front of a live cafe audience. <laughs> <laughs> 90s child in me. How do I say that? Like, is it just that one line, or is there more? To I mean, it? I was re- I'm recording the room too, so I might just cut Jordan in. <laughs> hey, everybody, and welcome to the Wayfarers Christian Church Bible Classroom. My name is Nick Griffin, and I'm the lead pastor at Wayfarers, and I'm super excited that you've decided to join us today. In this episode, uh, Noah Randolph, our teaching pastor, is going into chapter one of the book of Acts. He's giving us a general overview on how chapter one sets up the scene for the rest of the book. Uh, you're going to get an introduction to a lot of the important themes that come up in the rest of the book. And uh, you're going to get some interesting understanding of how this chapter connects to other sections, very important sections in the rest of the Bible. Uh, I also want to, uh, once again, extend the invitation. Come join us Thursdays at 6 p.m. in the Sustained Coffee pop-up space on the campus of Mid-South Christian College, where we record these Bible Classroom episodes. We would love to have the participation from you in person, have uh, you hang out, uh, get a little coffee, and dive into the Book of Acts with us. Otherwise, enjoy this recording. All right. So... We are now on to the section where we talk about the book of Acts. We've had all of that kind of broad overview. Sorry, again, I knew that this was going to be kind of a long section of how to read the Bible and then moving into the book of Acts in particular, but I felt like it was just needed because we've never really, again, done this before. We've never talked to you guys about how to actually read the Bible. So hopefully that was very helpful for you. Um, Hopefully it wasn't too much information all at once. Sometimes I have the tendency to be a water hose where it's just like a water hose of information after another and you just kind of got to drink it up and maybe go back and listen to this several times to get everything you can. So um, what we're going to start with in the book of Acts is the first um, opening. The uh, book of Acts opens with chapter one basically being a standalone um, introduction to the whole book. Verse eight in particular is sort of the map for the rest of the book. I actually have a section in your outline where I've written out the literary structure. And I'll go ahead and explain that real quick now, just so you get an idea of what this is, because it is really simple and really easy to talk about. Um, The literary structure of Acts is broken down into just one verse in Acts chapter one. Um, This is in Acts chapter one, verse eight. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, um, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And his disciples, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but they ask him a question. Are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he says a very coy kind of uh, interesting answer where he doesn't really answer their question, but gets at a deeper thing that he's talking about. But after he says uh, his little line about um, it's not for you to understand the dates and things, he says in verse 8, But you will, talking to the disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, you might be asking the question, what does that have to do with an outline for the book? And the reason it uh, matters to the outline of the book is because basically what Luke did was he took that one verse and he mapped the whole book to sections in which the episodes and actions that take place in the book all map on to those cities. So for instance, um, in Acts 2 through 7, all of the events that happen through 2 through 7 happen in Jerusalem, right? Remember in verse 8, it says, the first thing he says is, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. 
And the next one, he says, in Judea and all Samaria. Well, guess what? In Acts 8 through 12, all of the events happen in Judea and Samaria. And then following, he says, you'll be my witnesses in all the ends of the earth. From the rest of the book onward, we get Paul's missionary journeys from chapters 13 through 28. And basically, the rest of the book is talking about the ends of the earth, the far out reaches and Rome and Spain and all these different areas where they're all kind of branching out from. And that is really the simply the literature design that Luke decided to do is base everything on this one verse, which is really cool when you think about it. And it helps you understand from a Christian's perspective, that the movement in Acts is growing. The Christian movement is growing. And it starts out in this one little bubble of Jerusalem, then grows to Judea and Samaria, and then boom, it's to the ends of the earth, right? And so that's how he decided to design his book. But let's go ahead and just look at um, the first kind of section here. It's very short. It's only um, 10 verses overall. And I'm just going to read this section here so that we get a kind of overarching idea of the book of Acts. And we're going to kind of touch on some of the things here. So here we go. Um, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. All right, so. This is kind of a weird intro into our first book classroom because really what you're getting is part two of a book of the Bible. Um, the book of Luke covers all of the events that happen with Jesus in particular. Um, you've probably heard the story by now if you're uh, watching this of what happens with Jesus and everything that's gone on. Um, after all of the things that have happened in the book of Luke, Luke decides to give this little intro in the first uh, verse uh, giving us a little bit of a clue of who he's writing to. He's writing to this um, very influential, uh, probably wealthy, because at this time period, they couldn't really write books um, very easily without funds. And so Theophilus is probably his funder, someone that's giving him money to be able to have the tools necessary to write this big, long scroll. Uh, and so he writes to Theophilus, who we know now by name because of Luke, um, and says uh, that he basically wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach in his first book, which again, we haven't read, but we'll get there eventually. And in verse two, he says, until the day he was taken up to heaven, hinting at what this whole section is gonna be about. And then after uh, giving instructions through the Holy Spirit, talking about what Jesus is doing uh, and to the apostles, he specifically uh, starts to talk about some things that Jesus is doing in between his ascension 
and uh, all the stuff that happened in Luke. And there's one thing that I want to focus tremendously on with this section. It says in verse 3, after his suffering, suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. All right, so right off the way, we know that Luke is intending to communicate to you, right, that there were a lot of people that saw Jesus alive. Now, why would Luke be interested in trying to communicate that to you? Well, frankly, because it's a really incredible claim that he resurrected, right? That's what we dealt with in the book of Luke. So he's doing his best that he can to uh, essentially establish that a lot of people saw him resurrected. So this isn't just like some liar made up thing, right? And in particular, this is actually a theme that's going to go through the whole book of Luke, is that Luke is very particular to always name people and name cities. I think because um, he's trying to communicate, I'm grounding all this stuff in history, and this really, really happened. Um, really, really cool, little fun, little nerdy fact is that the book of Luke is probably our biggest source of validation that the Bible's true, because most of the historical evidence we find, we usually try and match to Luke because Luke was more detailed with his historical descriptions than any other book. So it's really just a cool side note that, he, that he's focusing on here that we get to see a little bit more of. Also, you'll notice that Luke has more names, uh, proper names than anyone. There's this really cool Bible teacher named Rick, uh, Richard Bauckham who talks about how the fact that Luke uses so many names in his books seems indications of the fact that he knew these people and interviewed them and they were eyewitnesses to these events. And so gives strength to the idea of the Bible being true. But again, you can read more about that in Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, which is the book that uh, Richard Bauckham wrote. Um, after uh, he gives this like little quick little intro and everything, um, he talks about what Jesus is doing after he gives them proof that he was alive. Um, he, it says he appeared to them over a period of 40 days. Again, we'll talk about the idea of 40 days in a second uh, and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, this is really important because you can miss this really easily if you're just reading it the first time. However, if you were to ask, ask yourself the question, what did Jesus primarily do when he was alive on earth before the crucifixion? If you were to ask yourself that question, what was he primarily doing? You'll come up with more scripture verses of him teaching about the kingdom of God than anything else in scripture. Apart from maybe like miracles, which he does quite regularly. Even apart from that, there are probably more verses where he mentions the kingdom of God than anything else. It's like his favorite topic to talk about. And what I love about this intro is basically Luke saying, even after he died and resurrected and came back, he was still teaching about the kingdom of God. And they get this 40 day crash crash course, basically, after he's resurrected, where he's still teaching the disciples what the kingdom of God is about. This also kind of ties in with this idea that I was talking about in one Instagram video we did, where the disciples still kind of are learning. Like, they're not in a position where everything is figured out now that Jesus is resurrected. They're really still trying to comprehend things, and they need a 40-day Bible classroom session where Jesus explains even further the kingdom of God. And even after that, we see in the verses below, they're still not getting it. <laughs> so if you feel like you don't understand anything in this session today, don't worry, you're in good <laughs> shoes. <laughs> but as, uh, as we go through this, we see that, again, they are asking this very particular question. And this is the focus of this entire section that Luke is trying to communicate. Uh, in this, they ask the question, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, I want you to notice that really different shift. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. 
They ask, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Um, what's interesting there, and there are a lot of debates about what some people think the disciples meant by this, but my prevalent belief is that they were asking, are you going to get rid of the Romans? Are you going to establish a kingdom where you are king now and it's a physical kingdom and you're going to reign and we're going to be your servants and you're going to clean house basically of this whole messy situation and definitely probably kill a bunch of people that killed you. Um, are you going to do that? I think that's what they were asking. Um, some people think that well, they had 40 days of trying to understand the kingdom of God, so it seems weird that they might ask that question. Some people make that argument, but I still think that the disciples are in this weird place where they just still are not understanding all of the implications of Jesus's resurrection. So again, there are different beliefs that you can take on this. My personal one is that um, feel free to do more research if you want to jump into that topic anymore. But for today, we'll talk about uh, it from that perspective, that that's what they were asking. Uh, and Jesus has this answer. It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his authority. Basically kind of leaving the question open-ended. Um, I do think, however, that what he says after is a partial answer to their question. Um, in particular, because what he says is, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then it's the line we read earlier that becomes our literary theme for the whole book. Um, you will be my witnesses in all these different places, right? The fact that he says the Holy Spirit's going to come on you in power is sort of his answer to their question, is the kingdom of God going to show up, right? It's the answer to this dilemma of the fact that the world still seems broken. And this is what Luke is setting up for us is, look, they killed you and you resurrected great, but like they still live, like it's still a system of power where the Romans are in power and like it's still as broken as ever, even though you've risen from the dead, right? How is this going to work? And Jesus's answer is, I am going to give you the Holy Spirit. And you'll see throughout the rest of the book that that's basically Luke's entire point of how the kingdom of God is going to work itself out in every story. The Holy Spirit is the number one theme that uh, Luke is on about. Like he's constantly talking about the Holy Spirit and he's constantly using the Holy Spirit as a means by which the power of God gets interacted in the world and the kingdom starts happening in people's lives. Basically, you can't have the kingdom of God without the Holy Spirit. That's his point. And if you are trying to have the kingdom of God without the Holy Spirit, you won't have it. And so that's what we are started with. That's his basic opening thesis is essentially from this start uh, going forward, the disciples are gonna receive the Holy Spirit. That's gonna partially answer their question. Is the kingdom gonna come to Israel, right? And then we have this ending section to the book that kind of ties into this. A lot of people think it's weird that Luke chose to tack on this ending section. I won't read it, but this whole ending section from verses 12 through 23 is really a section that talks about how the disciples now have to replace Judas because Judas hanged himself and then fell and had his entrails burst open on a field. And there's some interesting things with the Old Testament verses that I would love to talk about that we just don't have time for. But overall, it's a story about the fact that they have to replace Judas and they end up casting lots to replace him with a new candidate. Now, it's very confusing because it kind of kills the pace of the story, right? You've got this story where Jesus is like telling them and commissioning them, I'm 
going to send the Holy Spirit, and then he like ascends and goes away, and they're left on their own to basically follow his and just his instructions. And yeah, then we just get this weird story where uh, they do what he says, but in between them doing what he says, they have to replace an apostle. Um, and what I think Luke is trying to communicate here, and this is where theme really helps, is remember how they asked that question: Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel in particular? I think what's going on here is now that they're 11, they no longer symbolically represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And so what Luke is communicating here by replacing this disciple that's lost is he's saying they're back up to 12. This is still representing the tribes of Israel with this community here because Jesus specifically chose 12 and we will get back up to 12. There's also an interesting tie-in just with the verse and how um, uh, in uh, many in, in one specific Old Testament passage, um, the uh, implication is, is that the one that betrays Jesus will get replaced. Um, and you can read about that in um, Psalm 69. Like I said, we just don't have time to go through Psalm 69 and kind of see how it works out. But both of those reasons, one, the Old Testament tie-in, and then two, a more literary reason of Luke trying to establish that these 12 disciples are now existing again, we've gone from 11 back up to 12, is basically setting the table for what's about to happen in chapter 2, where we have 12 people representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Maybe this kingdom is going to come through Israel in this weird way because of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. What's going to happen next, right? So maybe that helps a little bit for why this story seems so out of the blue almost um, and why it's here.